and welcome to TV My Husband Hates. I'm Kat Sims. And I'm Regan Kempton. And we are reality TV addicts. Addicts, uh, aficionados. Ooh, I like that. Experts. Experts. Basically, we know our shit when it comes to reality TV. 100%. Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of TV My Husband Hates. Now, this is the point at which I would usually introduce Reagan, but uh, like an idiot, she has left me to my own devices. Um, nobody is more nervous about it than me, but uh, except perhaps Reagan. Um, and I'm really sorry if Reagan's your favourite and you only tune in every week for her. Then um, apologies, but trust me, in a couple of weeks there's an episode coming up that will just be her. So you know, stick it out and wait till then. She is actually taking a well-earned vacation and we do try and do an episode every single week and normally we've taken our recording equipment away with us but I think our families and husbands were a bit like do we have to take the microphone everywhere we go um so we're trying this um we're going to see how it goes and it won't be happening very often but when it does happen we hope that you can get on board so um it's just me flying solo with four shows don't know about you but this has been kind of a weird week for me um on one hand, I'm in the party mode because it's my birthday tomorrow and I'm not quite yet 40, which is always something to celebrate. That's coming up next year. But on the other hand, I'm in mourning because school broke up for the summer. So now I've got both kids home for the next six weeks. Obviously, I love my children, but, you know, I've had them home for four months. Then they went to school for six weeks. And uh, I can safely say I've completely run out of any way of keeping them occupied. I mean, what the actual fuck? I have enough trouble keeping them entertained when everything is open, let alone right now in the middle of our new dystopian reality, when the only thing open is Weatherspoons and the corner shop. So I'm girding my loins, ready for a long summer, um, and wish me luck. But don't worry, we will be here throughout, making sure that you guys get everything that you need. Before we start, though, can I be really annoying and repetitive and beg you without any dignity or pride to please, please take a minute to rate and review us? That being said, maybe don't base your review on this particular episode, because God knows how it's going to go without Reagan. But if you can spare a few minutes to hit those five stars and just write a few words, we'd be eternally grateful. It's really important to the podcast. It really helps us keep going. And it's uh, it, it's kind of the main reason why we can keep coming back and doing it. So the more rates and reviews we get, the happier we'll be and the more content you'll get. But let's get on to the reason we're here, the TV shows that we know and love so well. As I said, we've got four shows on the lineup and a lot of crazy bitches to discuss. Yes, I'm looking at you, Housewives of New York. So I'll get on with it. First up is Below Deck Mediterranean. And once again this week, the interior is struggling because Jess has smashed up her finger in a door. And it turns out that she's kind of a princess. She gets well salty when the guests expect her to do her job. And don't get me wrong, those guests are demanding. But if you're going to be working on a super yacht that they've paid $200,000 a week to rent out, then, you know, I'd probably be a bit demanding. Um, and... Either you're working or you're not, Jess, you know, and it looks to me like you're on the boat in uniform. So you're working. So do the bloody job and stop whinging. I do feel for Hannah, though. She doesn't make life easy for herself, but I feel a bit for her because she's basically down a stew all over again. It's been a rough start to the season. But you know what? It's OK because she's got Bugsy. 
Not that she's ever going to admit that. I have a real soft spot for Hannah because I think that her flaws that we see aren't because she's a terrible person. And I do think it comes from insecurity. And I can really relate to that. But I just wish that she was secure enough to know that Bugsy's brilliance doesn't diminish her own in any way. I feel like she's constantly worried that Bugsy is going to show her up. But the reality is that she's the only one that can let Bugsy show her up. And that is so true for so many of us in so many situations. We spend so much time worrying about what somebody else is going to make us look like or what somebody else is going to think of us or what they're going to make us do or say. And we forget all the power that we have. And we forget that actually we are in complete control of everything we do and say, how we come across and what we put out there. And I just want Hannah to know that. I feel like she's putting so much agency onto Bugsy in terms of how she's perceived and and how well she does her job. And it's just not true. That being said, you know, Bugsy doesn't miss the opportunity this week to highlight a mistake that Hannah makes with the lemons. Um, Of course, she fixes it quickly. But I feel like the tension between these two is starting to build up. And previously, when I believed that Bugsy was going to sort of take the high road, I'm starting to see little hints that maybe show me that that isn't the case. And if Bugsy doesn't keep this shit together, it's going to explode. And while I really hope it doesn't, I also really hope it does, because that's great television. Talking of exploding, and apologies for this particular segue because it's probably going to make you vom, but Pete talks about needing a release. And even Marlia voms a little bit. Like she gets a little bit of the retching uh, when he says that. And he's just so gross. And I'm not sure if this is what he had in mind, but if he carries on talking this way, he's going to be released from his job. Uh, and Bugsy decides to take it, take these issues to Sandy. And I don't blame her. You know, I think as women, we let this low-level sexism and inappropriate language slide way too often in professional and personal situations. And it's not okay. I think too often we are afraid to say something because it feels a bit like there's nothing tangible to highlight. You know, if there's no physical contact or violently threatening language, then, you know, is there anything that we can actually criticise or or or, t- or take to a boss? But It's more than enough for Bugsy and the rest of it. What Pete's doing is more than enough for Bugsy and the rest of us watching to feel deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And Sandy is understandably having none of it. We've had issues in seasons past where this kind of behaviour hasn't been reported to the captain. And every single time we get to reunion, the captain's like, if you'd have told me, I would have done something immediately. So I'm glad Bugsy goes. I'm glad Sandy does what she says she's going to do. Uh, And she has a word with Pete and he just sort of responds with, I mean, he's immediately apologetic and pays lip service to what it is that she's saying. But he also responds with this line, which I found was really interesting. And he says, I guess I'm just too much of an open book as if the problem isn't his narrative. It's the fact that he's allowing people to see that narrative. It's like hiding the fact that you think that you're a misogynistic pig and you think that women are just objects you can treat like shit is not the lesson to take away from this, Pete. Changing that narrative and starting to treat and respect women as equal human beings, that's the lesson that you should take away. As it is, I don't think he's quite made that jump. And while I'd love to think that his kind of come to Jesus chat with Sandy and his subsequent demotion by Marlia from 
uh, lead deckhand uh, would kind of trigger something in him, be be kind of a transformative moment. I think he just decides that actually he just needs to keep his misogynistic sexist shit to himself because that's not the problem. It's that they're not quite ready to hear it or they're not, you know, responding to it in the right way. Either way, whether it's faked or not, we do seem to get a slightly more self-aware Pete for the rest of the episode. Apparently, we are now being introduced to professional Pete. I don't know where he was for the first four charters. Uh, we just had pig Pete, but now we have professional Pete. Let's see if this new mask he's got it got on can stay. I suspect it'll slip, but who knows? Maybe he's just going to be quiet and this is when he's going to be edited out and we're barely even going to know he's there. Let's hope so. I think it's interesting, though, because this, I think, for Pete will be is almost certainly the first time he's ever received um, a kind of tongue lashing from strong females who are his superiors. And this will be a shock to his fragile ego. I mean, his ego is as fragile as my pelvic floor. God knows how he's going to deal with this. But, you know, as I say, he does seem to be making more of an effort to not be quite as much of a douchebag, which I think at this point is, you know we'll take it, right? And these guests are demanding, I have to say. And poor Kiko really seems to bear the brunt of it. We've got vegans, we've got juice haters, they're really hungry, they want their dinner on time, which isn't that unreasonable. But I think that Kiko's ruffled and for some reason he's lost his call in this uh, charter. But I thought it was really sad to see just how hard he was on himself. I just wanted to climb into that TV and give him a cuddle and pick him up and put him in my pocket and just look after him. I hope they tip well. I suspect they won't, but we'll find out next week. While we've got you here, we'd love to talk to you about our brand new Patreon account. Woohoo! It's all the extra content that is not only about reality TV, but all the other TV that we happen to be watching. And if that wasn't cool enough, we also give away a little bit more about ourselves. So there's lots of personal stuff on there too, if you want to get to know us better. So head on over to patreon.com, search for TV My Husband Hates, and all this extra content can be yours for less than a cup of coffee. Or a glass of wine. Whatever you choose. Next up is Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles and I was quite sad about this but we see this we see the end of Flag and Altman's working relationship. Um I've really enjoyed seeing these two work together. I actually think they bring out the best in each other. I think they're two people that can work together and it means that they don't take themselves too seriously. So I, I kind of was a bit sad to see them on opposing ends of the negotiating table in this deal, but God love them for selling that house and to Alicia Keys, no less. Can we just talk about the amounts of money involved here though? Not even for what it's being sold for. I mean, Altman walked away from that negotiating table with over $700,000 in commission. I mean, if you earned that in one afternoon, wouldn't you just sit back for the rest of the year and have people bring you shit all the time? Like, can I have a burrito? Can you rub my feet? I mean, I think if that's the kind of money I earned in an afternoon, I'm not sure I'd go to work for the rest of the year. But then maybe that's why he's mega successful and and I'm not. But it is mind-blowing to see how much one sale can make them. And I know that they've worked hard to get there. I know it's not just one afternoon's work. But I honestly don't think I've earned 
pounds in my entire life. Maybe it's time for me to get a proper job. I mean, let's not get silly. Anyway, meanwhile, James and David are on a last minute Hail Mary house shopping expedition for a woman who is 39 weeks pregnant. Women, why do we do this? Why is it when we are heavily pregnant, we decide that now is the time to make enormous life-shifting decisions? I did it when I was pregnant with my eldest. We moved into a house four weeks before my due date. So this was the first baby I'd had. So obviously there was anxiety around that. This was also the first house we'd ever bought. So there was anxiety around that. We moved in four weeks before and what did we do? We just ripped it all out. We ripped everything. We took the plaster off. The, we took it back to the brick. We ripped all the carpets up. We ripped the bathroom. Out. We didn't have a working bathroom for two weeks. I was eight and a half months pregnant, peeing in the garden in front of the... I had to go to Costa for a poo because even I... And my boundaries are fairly wide. But even I was like, I am not curling one down nine months pregnant in front of my husband, the neighbours and the builders. Like, no. So I was at Costa twice a day. I was peeing in the garden. We didn't have anywhere to sleep. We didn't have a working kitchen that wasn't covered in builders' tools and dust. I don't know why we do it, but for some reason, there's something in it. And us, when we're pregnant, we decide, you know what, now's the time to move house. I mean, that being said, she's not in quite, this woman isn't quite in the same position I was. First of all, she's got over $6 million to spend and quite quite rightly wants to buy a place that's sort of turnkey and modern as hell um she sees two houses personally i would have taken that first house they saw in a heartbeat and i don't know whether it's the british in me but i really appreciate character in a house and original features and even if they're not original features something that isn't just a big concrete box is always going to win it for me but she just wants this modern glass filled box which is hands down of course the most practical choice when you have small children because what you really want to spend all your time doing is cleaning sticky shitty handprints off glass walls and banisters i mean i don't know about you but i've basically decided not to bother cleaning any of my windows now until my kids are about 18 I mean, they'll probably have a maid to do that stuff for them. But that aside, they still end up buying this really impractical box for a cool 6.65 million. But there was a little bit of me. And if you've had kids, I'm sure you'll be able to appreciate this. But there was a little bit of me because this is her first baby. And I, I was a bit like her in that you know what you think is going to happen before you have your first kid versus what actually happens. And and you think what's going to change when you have a first kid but versus what actually changes when you have your first kid. My blog, Not So Smug Now, is literally came into existence for that reason. And it's named Not So Smug Now for that exact reason. I was that prick that was like, my kids are going to have wooden toys they're going to eat organic food i'm not going to give them a dummy they're going to wear reusable nappies and i probably took about 27 seconds for all of that shit to go out of the window and i remember giving her a dummy and someone sort of you know that passive aggressive way other mums sometimes do in playgroups it's it happens less now i think because we're talking more openly about how hard motherhood is but certainly at the time it was like everything was so passive aggressive um and she was like oh I heard that dummies aren't really you know that great for them and and I just remember turning around going do you know what it was either give her a dummy or throw her out of the fucking window and on balance I felt the dummy was less damaging um and I think that's 
that's kind of how I felt she was a little bit. I think she was going to, I just felt she was woefully unprepared and this baby was going to splash down and her life was going to go up in a ball of smoke and her concrete box suddenly wasn't going to feel like the most practical thing in the world. But, you know, I don't want to shit on somebody's parade. They get the house. I'm sure they'll be very happy, if not constantly irritated by the sticky smears all over the glass and the fact that their kids are always falling down those open tread stairs. But who am I to judge? Finally, with Million Dollar Listing LA, we've got my favourite woman in reality TV at the moment, hands down, Tracy Tutor. My girl crush on this woman is getting out of control, like out of control, genuinely out of control. Plus, I don't know if you noticed, but the sign on her door says the future is female and I could have married her right there. Um, I love that she isn't just doing this blindly. You know, we've talked a lot about how Tracy Tutor is a strong businesswoman, unapologetic. And when I saw that sign on her door, yes, it may seem a bit cliche, but it made me realise that she is not doing this unconsciously. She, I really feel like Tracy Tutor is consciously doing this to further women in real estate, to to show them and to model that you don't have to be apologetic. It feels like it's a conscious choice for her to help women. She's kind of opening the door. She's raising them up. She's doing all that stuff. And God love her for it. Um, And in this episode, I thought it was really interesting that A, I'd come to that realization and B, I think we saw examples of exactly what female real estates, female businesswomen, successful female businesswomen go through all the time, every day. Those kind of male microaggressions that get thrown at you. Um, She is kicking ass in Malibu. And frankly, I'm also amazed she's not serving time behind bars because I think if anyone had spoken to me like Scott Scott Gillen did, or in fact, like the Altman brothers did a little bit too, then I would have pushed them off that clifftop and not not looked back. Plus, she's absolutely fucking exhausted because Scott Gillen is calling her every time of the day and night. But by some miracle, she manages to get a broker's open to actually happen. But we also learn that Josh Altman used to have this listing, um, which is interesting. And listen, while there's no doubt that Josh Altman has evolved emotionally over the seasons, this is just too much for him. It is too much for him to know that he had one of the most valuable listings and lost it in a week and that Tracy Tutor now has it and it's pushing all his competitive testosterone buttons and you can just tell that he can't wait for her to fail or be fired and it was almost like when he turns up at the Brokers Open it was almost like he was goading Scott to do just that at the open house he wanted Scott to say yeah she's annoying or she's not doing it properly or that's what he wanted to get out of her so he could feel better about himself. Um, it felt a little bit nasty. And I do really appreciate Josh's vibe. And I, even though it's not something that it's, he's not the way I would be, I, I have learned to appreciate the Josh Altman vibe. But I felt that this hit his ego a little hard. And in response, his defense was to get a little bit nasty. And that could just be me. Um but I felt it was inappropriate the way he behaved at that Brokers Open. And as if dealing with the Altman ego wasn't bad enough, Tracy also had to put up with Scott Gillen being 
completely unreasonable speaking to her like a piece of shit on the bottom of his shoe except it of course wouldn't be a shoe it would have to be some naff hotel slipper because no one's actually allowed to wear shoes on his land due to the fact that he's a grade a piece of shit asshole um but with this guy i have a question do you think that he was always a complete wank puffin or do you think he only became a wank puffin when he earned a certain amount of money and i find this really interesting as a concept because so many people with a ridiculous amount of money are assholes and i just don't know whether natural born assholes have more are more predisposed to get rich or whether you can't get to a certain level of wealth without turning into an asshole how much money do you have to have before you begin to feel like it's okay to be consistently cunty to people? I guess is my question. How much money makes that okay? Because here's the reality. You get to a certain amount of money and you're everybody's meal ticket. So you know that they're not going to call you out on your shit. And you know that they're going to let you behave badly. And I just, that must have an effect on how you are as a person. Anyway, that was just something that I was thinking um, about. And I have to say, I think Tracy handled it brilliantly. She just walked away um, and let the brokers open continue. And for God help me, I hope she sells that house and all the others, if only so that I can see Altman's ego cry like a baby. I mean, that would be worth it for me right now. Um, so yeah, that's Million Dollar Listing LA and staying in LA, let's head to Beverly Hills for The Real Housewives. And this is an episode full of the ghosts of Real Housewives past. Um, and of course, the long awaited arrival of Brandy. God, we've been waiting for this for so long. I'm so gutted that it's finally here. Brandy's finally turned up and Reagan's not here to talk about it. Don't, I imagine though that we will be discussing it next week as well. So don't worry. Um, but yes, everybody's here. And first up, Camille comes back. Now, I don't know about you, but I never really got Camille. She's just always seemed a little bit dead behind the eyes to me. But I suppose being married to Kelsey Grammer for any length of time will do that to you. Uh, but in this episode, she's reached out to Kyle to try and smooth things over. Um, I forget what it was all about, but I think it was something to do with Camille got up in Dorit's grill for not being honest about her finances or her husband's financial situation. I don't really know what it had to do with her. She was just stoking the fire. I, I sort of just remember her being a little bit feisty and mixy and trying to cause drama. Um, in the meantime, she's clearly been having a serious case of the Twitter rages. Uh, but despite all this, her and Kyle decide to move forward and Kyle decides she's going to try and facilitate her kind of uh, making it up with the other ladies and invites her to the black and white uh, party. So Camille turns up to the black and white party and I've got to be honest, none of the other ladies seem to be as willing as Kyle to let sleeping dogs lie. Although Lisa Rinna does seem to give her a chance and I have to respect Lisa Rinna's approach to this because it's something that I would do. This is how I would also deal with it. There'd be no mucking about. I'd walk straight up and, and I would do what Lisa Rinna does, which is basically say, listen, it's really nice to see you, but you're an asshole on Twitter. Like, I'm glad you're here. The olive branch is there, but I just need to say you're an asshole on Twitter. I am giving you 
a chance to own it. Just go, I know, I'm sorry, and then we can have a hug and move on. That's all Camille needs to do. And let's not forget, she's asked for Kyle's help to try and make this better with the lady. So you would think that she would be ready to say sorry, but no. Camille decides to get defensive and feisty and testy. She gets her panties in a bunch. Um, So that doesn't go very well. And then Teddy gives a short shrift because she has no time for her and everybody else ignores her. So it's not quite the successful apology tour that Camille hoped for. Um, And uh, news just in, Denise appears to still be riding the batshit crazy train. So Lisa's lunch with her, I think, is a really interesting moment in the series because I feel two things happen. First of all, I feel like Lisa really tries to talk to Denise in a one-on-one situation. She's the only person I feel that can do this. And I think she really tries to say the things all the ladies want to say. But the other thing that happens is in the interviews, I think Lisa nails Denise. All of these things that Reagan and I have been saying over the last few weeks is exactly what she is saying now. And the first thing is this idea that her energy doesn't match what she's saying. And I think that's such a good way of putting it because Denise keeps saying, I'm fine, it's fine, leave it. It's clearly not fine. And even if it is fine for her, she has to respect that it isn't fine for the other ladies. They need some sort of process, some kind of closure, and she's not giving it to them. It's You can't do that. You can't just decide that this is how a situation is going to go, regardless of anybody else's feelings. And that's what Denise is doing. Um, and she also says that she thinks Denise is using the show to change her image from last season after all the Aaron's got a big dick chat. And I can't. And, and the thing is, I don't really understand that either, because I can't help but think, why is she so bothered about this? Because none of this is going to matter when it comes out that her and Brandy have been shagging on the side. And it just seems so weird. I wonder what has happened between last season and this season, which means that Denise needs to do some serious damage control. And I've got to be honest, I thought it was the Brandy thing. But when we see Brandy and her at the black and white party, I don't know about you. And maybe this was just me and I've got the wrong end of the stick. But I thought that was when the shit was going to hit the fan. And I thought Denise would get very tense and weird and all of that around Brandy. But she doesn't. They're like super great mates and they're holding hands and they're sitting next to each other. So at this point, it seems like Denise isn't even worried about all of this Brandy stuff coming out. Which makes me think, why on earth has she been behaving like so crazy for the whole season? It doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, But that being said, uh, the black and white party is brilliant and full of ghosts pasts and they just keep coming. Eileen is back. I always loved Eileen, still do. Uh, I always felt that she was kind of real and a little bit out of her depth. Um, I don't think you can be too kind of authentic in this group and I always believed that Eileen was but she's back for one night only obviously Camille's here Adrian Maloof and her ex-husband Paul turn up um the queen of reality tv Chris Jenner turns up Brandy is back um but we'll wait, we have to wait a little bit longer for the drama between Brandy and Denise because right now Brandy isn't spilling the beans she hasn't been spilling the beans it looks like um she's going to But I genuinely thought this black and white party was going to be the moment where it all went kaboom. And instead, 
they sort of held hands and sat next to each other and told each other how gorgeous they looked. Uh, so clearly we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for the fireworks. Uh, before we leave, there's just one thing I want to say about Garcelle and then we'll head over to the East Coast for the final show. I don't know about you. I really like Garcelle and I really want her on the show, but I feel like she's just too removed from the group. And I know she's got a lot on. She's a single mum. She's moving house. She's working hard. She's really trying to bring in the dollar. And it just feels like maybe right now she doesn't have quite the time to be as much a part of the show as I'd like her to be, because I really feel like she does have potential to incite drama, to, you know, to cause tension. I think she speaks her mind. She seems to be standing up for Denise in this, which makes me think that she's not afraid of conflict or controversy. Uh, But she's she's barely there in group settings. Um, But. What I do love about her in this episode is the discussion that she has regarding kind of her place at the metaphorical table as it is. And the fact that she is probably, what, late 40s? I honestly don't know how old she is. But that really open and frank discussion that she's now at a point and it's taken her time to get there where she realizes that she can have the confidence to have a voice. And I think that it's something I'm definitely still learning that You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be the biggest, the brightest in the room to be able to have an opinion and to to expect that opinion to be respected. But we all have a terrible habit of walking into a room and feeling like we just need to stay quiet and let the people who know what they're talking about do the speaking. And, you know, we need to not do that anymore. And I loved this conversation that she had. Um, And I think it it was a good reminder that we all, as women, have to consciously work harder at being heard, at leaning in, at saying what we think we needs to be said, um, without worrying about a bunch of men that might think us stupid. Uh, so, you know, that's just my little moralization. That's not a word. Is it a word? I don't know. Uh, for the day. Um, And as I say, we'll have to wait for the drama, the Brandy-Denise drama. I don't think it's going to be long. It looks like from the teasers that Brandy's going to be hanging around for a bit. It looks like she goes away with them, I think, to Rome. So we'll see. But I am excited for this to happen. Listen, it's what we've been waiting for all season. Finally, we head to the East Coast for the Real Housewives of New York. And we are back in the Berkshires, the Berserkshires where the rosé is flowing and so is Luann's venomous stream of insults. Can I just say, everyone is hammered. And I have to say, I bloody love these ladies for it. It feels like they are the only ones left who are still getting hammered and acting appallingly. Beverly Hills girls aren't doing it. I mean, the Jersey girls do, but they're not on our screens at the moment. None of the others seem to be getting hammered and behaving appallingly. And frankly, you know it, I know it. That's what we're all here for. Um, but these ladies are not disappointing. Um, it's just so damn entertaining. But it's not long before Dorinda jumps on the bitch wagon as well and then lays into Luan for being a drunken beast when she says, well, you have a mugshot of your drunkenness, which I find hilarious and hypocritical in equal measures. Because wasn't it Dorinda who was encouraging Luanne to start drinking again? Wasn't it Dorinda who's going, well, I never thought that you were an alcoholic. Of course you can have a drink. Problem is, when Luanne has a drink, this is what happens. And having a drink problem isn't always about necking a bottle of vodka in breakfast and hiding it. 
Sometimes it's just recognizing that when you're drinking, you're kind of a cunt. And I think in this episode, Luann's drinking is really alarming. And the way that she speaks to Sonia is really alarming. Um, so while I don't condone what Dorinda does, Luann is not the victim in this particular scenario, despite all her efforts to make us believe that she is. Because, of course, as soon as Dorinda says whatever it is that she says, Luann turns on the tears and does a dramatic exit. And, of course, then everybody's like, oh, poor Luann, Luann this, Luann that. I mean, Leah's spot on. She says, let's be honest, we're all one drink away from a mugshot. Luan is not a victim in this situation. They are all batshit crazy. They are all behaving appallingly with the exception of Luan. Even Sonia, who isn't being mean, I mean, is spread eagled all over the dining room floor. Um, so I'm, I, I'm really waiting for a chance for Luan to redeem herself in my book, because I'm sure that's what she's worried about. But this episode... Uh, wasn't it um but i feel oh that that's what i was going to say sorry i lost my train of thought there for a second um i have no love lost for luann and you know how reagan when we're talking about police uh police deck below deck mediterranean always worries about pete's mum and she's like i feel so sorry for his mum and the way he is she must be so mortified I feel a little bit that way for Luann's kids and Dorinda's for that matter. Like I know they're going through, I know both those women are going through shit, but there's no excuse for the way that they treat people. And one of the things I am so shit hot on with my kids is kindness. I genuinely, every day before I drop them off, when I pick them up, I'm like, be kind. Were you kind to them? Did you, was there any, and I'll check, I'll say, you know, did you do anything today that you think wasn't that kind? You know, maybe is there something we need to work through? Is there something you need to apologize for? I really hammer it into them. I don't care if they can't read or write, as long as they are nice, kind people. So I'm really heavily affected by unkindness and unhappiness. And I just would be mortified if my kids saw me behave that way and say those things to another human being. Um, but that, they don't seem to give a shit. But Luann has the barefaced cheek to criticise Dorinda for making her feel bad about herself when she's literally just done that to Sonia five seconds previously. She, I mean, she called her worthless. I don't think there's anything more hurtful and cruel than saying that about another hum human being. Um, obviously, that's conveniently forgotten about. And her and Leah decide that the best thing to do is go to the pub, which seems about as sensible as that pregnant woman in million dollar listing buying a big glass house to put her small, dirty, sticky children in. But anyway, um, the next morning, just like that, they decide to um, explain and excuse their behaviour on Rosé, which, I mean, we've all done terrible things on Rosé. Uh, I can appreciate that. Um, but it doesn't really feel like they're sorting out the root issues. Uh, and of course, they all hug and kiss and braid each other's hair. Sonia buckles under Luan's overbearing nature and basically says she'll pay Luanne to be in the show. Turns out Leah once peed on a prince and Ramona is so full of shit that when she finally releases it, she blocks Dorinda's toilet. Um, but it turns out that wasn't all the shit Ramona was full of because her conversation at dinner that night is probably the most sphincter-clenching, cringe-worthy moments in television I've seen. Her discussing about how she is in the top 1% and how there are no men who can cope with her and how their dicks don't get hard because she has more money than them. Ramona, babe, 
you're picking the wrong men. Maybe if for a minute you just took a hot minute to look beyond the Upper East Side, you might discover that not all men are completely insecure, testosterone-filled wankers. I'm just saying, babe, like there are hundreds of men who respect strong women and uh, hundreds, there's probably a lot more than hundreds, but there's there are men who respect strong, wealthy women who aren't intimidated by it and have an ego uh, and a sense of masculinity that's strong enough to allow that to happen and to fall in love with a woman who earns more than them. Um, but if she wasn't so busy looking for some traditional rich guy, then this is what's going to happen. Um, the guy she's talking to is obviously suitably dismayed and I feel for him too. Imagine being sat next to a drunk Ramona at a dinner party. It's bad enough being the delivery guy who turns up with the food with a drunk Ramona. Um, but that all said, this actually seems to be a pretty decent dinner party. It all looks like everybody's getting on. I mean, Leah and Elise or Erica are snogging in the corner. Then Leah's hot stuff turns up, which is great. Um, Leah's line that she's the only one who still gets her period in this group is enough to make me howl with laughter and she gets the dick she's desperate for. I really hope she goes for it with him. He was cute. Is that just me or was he cute? Um, and it does look like it's going to be another night of debauchery and I've no doubt that we will pick it up um, the morning after. So let's see what happens there. But that brings us to the end of this episode and it has been weird without my mate Reagan uh I hope she's having a wonderful weekend away with her family um it will be both of us next week and then the week after it'll just be Reagan again because I'm going on uh I'm going on vacation so we'll see how it goes let us know what you think of the solo episode be kind though if you think it was shit don't bother saying that you know it's it it's been quite exposing being here without a partner. So just to be clear, um, be gentle. Um, I've missed her, but she will be back. In the meantime, I hope that you will have a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, I am now going to stop this recording and go and celebrate my birthday with a strong gin and tonic. And I hope that you guys have something to celebrate too. And if you don't, then find something. Uh, because in this day and age of quarantining and lockdown and COVID-19 and Trump and Boris and all that bullshit, we need to be searching out things to celebrate. So go, enjoy it, have a great week, and we will both be back next week. Bye. Please subscribe, rate, and review TV My Husband Hates wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at TV My Husband Hates and join the Facebook group to keep the conversation going when the podcast ends. If Twitter's your thing, you'll find us at TV Husbands Hate. Theme music and production for TV My Husband Hates is by Jimmy Sims. Yeah.